now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Episode 2 of the Just Science podcast involves a case from Canada that forensic scientist Andrew Greenfield worked on when he was a young scientist. The gruesome murder of a child in 1999 in Toronto was unheard of and it dominated the airwaves, and because of inaccurate witness statements describing the suspects, it was near impossible to generate leads for this case. Greenfield spoke up to one of his superiors about using a new DNA technology to help find a lead. We will be discussing with him outside-the-box thinking and DNA match probability and what it means for justice. This podcast contains violent and sometimes graphic content which may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. This week, we're at the American Society of Crime Laboratory directors meeting in Dallas, Texas. It's early May in 2017. We've been talking to a bunch of folks this week. We're with Andrew Greenfield with the Ontario Center for Forensic Science. Andy, welcome to Just Science. Thank you. Good afternoon. Let me make sure I get your bio right. The Center for Forensic Science is under the Ontario government and is headquartered in Toronto. Uh, How does that work and what is your position? So I'm one of the uh, deputy directors of the Center of Forensic Sciences. There are three of us, and you're correct. The big lab is in Toronto, and there's one satellite lab, which is located in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, which is about 700 kilometers north of Toronto. And my role is, is as the manager of that satellite laboratory. Okay. Now, at the time of this case, though, you were down in Toronto, or...? Yes. uh, At the time in uh, 1999, I was actually a forensic biologist and working in Toronto, and I'd been there since 1996. Was that your first foray professionally out from college, or how'd you you get to be in in the Center for Forensic Science? Um, Actually, I had a few more years' experience, so it's obvious that I must look quite young. But, uh, no, I'd uh, worked at the Forensic Science Service in uh, in the UK. I guess that's where I picked up this accent. Ah. And uh, I was... Did you grow up in the UK? I did, yes. I'm from Southend-on-Sea, which is near London. Okay. But I was working in in Birmingham at the Home Office Forensic Science Service in a quality assurance role at the time. And towards the end of my career in Birmingham, I began to uh, get into what was then the new wave of DNA analysis called STR analysis, because it was being developed in that organization. Now, I was in a support role. I wasn't a forensic biologist then. And once I'd spent about a year learning the STR analysis, I was looking for a new challenge and uh, particularly wanted to be a forensic scientist at the bench. That was my training. Mm-hmm. And I had an opportunity to go to uh, Canada, Toronto, mm-hmm. and uh, take up a position as a forensic biologist, which I did in 1996. So how does that work? So the RCMP covers some of Canada, but it, Ontario does its own thing. Is that how that works? Yes, you're almost correct there. The province of Ontario has the Center of Forensic Sciences, which really deals exclusively with Ontario now. The RCMP does have a laboratory in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they will do Ottawa cases, so that's technically it's in Ontario, but the Center of Forensic Sciences actually does a lot of Ottawa cases as well. So um, not to get too technical, we cover Ontario, 
there's a laboratory in Montreal. It's mm -hmm. a similar type of idea to the the way it works in Ontario. So there's a public laboratory that covers the province of Quebec. That's located in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And then the RCMP labs, there are four of those that uh, cover the rest of the country. Obviously, the RCMP labs are under the RCMP. Is your lab under a police force or is it independent? We're publicly funded. We're a public lab. We work under the Ontario Public Service. Our clients are the police forces throughout the province of Ontario. Okay. So we don't work for a particular police force. So, for example, the laboratory in Toronto is not under the auspices of the Toronto Police Service. Mm -hmm. They're just a client of ours, as are any other police force throughout the province. And we have other clients too, such as the Ontario Coroner's uh, Service. So how often is it that you all would attend scenes? You do your own crime scene investigative units, or how much of that is, is in the police forces, and how much of that is stuff that you all handle? Crime scene attendance is very rare for a forensic scientist in Ontario. The Ontario Provincial Police or the City Police will typically attend the crime scenes and specialized units within those forces, which we call forensic identification services, would process the scene, collect the evidence and send that to the laboratory for analysis. In this particular instance that we'll be talking about, I did attend the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, it does happen occasionally, but it's not really a big part of our work. So Toronto seems one of the more American-like Canadian cities. And now this is a case where you have a child homicide. So i certainly warn the listeners that we're going to be talking about a fairly sensitive case in that regard. Is How often would you see you know, a, a case of that seriousness in Toronto? Is it comparable to the United States or is it you know, less so, more so? I would be guessing a little bit, but I think it would be a safe guess to say that the crime rate and the kind of gravity of those crimes would be somewhat less in a city like Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s. Toronto has expanded since then, and there's a lot more people there, big, bigger population, and some other sort of socioeconomic issues. But to answer the question, I, I would say that it's, uh, the crime rate would be significantly lower than, than you'd expect in a comparable-sized city in the United States. Let's get into the case in question here. So what, what actually arose that, uh, that started the case? So this case uh, was a very interesting one, and it started with actually uh, a witness very close in time to the homicide. It was the homicide of a child. The witness was walking her dog in a West End Toronto park. So the West End, is that is it just a large public park? Is it a nice area of town? Yes, it's a nice area. It, when I say West End, it was really more slightly west of the downtown. Mm -hmm. So somewhere between the downtown and the suburbs of Toronto. So Toronto is a city that's bordered on one side by uh, Lake Ontario. So mm -hmm. there's really only two sides, east and west, and then the north of Toronto. So this was in the west side. And in fact, the park was located on Lake Ontario, a popular place for people to go jogging, walking, walking their dogs. Now, this happened to be in early December of 1999, so people were still out. It's kind of cold there, but people were out in the park, and a lady walking her dog noticed a male burying a, a garbage bag by some rocks, and she figured that this was, uh, he was hiding some drugs or something like that. She approached the guy just really in passing, and she thought that she'd heard him with a salutation of hola, so the Spanish word for hello, 
and when he was out of sight, she went to investigate what she thought was a drug drop. And when she looked at the bag, she noticed that there was blood in the bag. She said that she thought that maybe he was burying a, a pet instead. And it wasn't drugs at all, but on closer inspection, she noticed that the bag contained human limbs. I believe that it was both arms and both legs. And it was clearly the, the limbs from a child. And so after she sees that there is a, a body, I assume she understands it's a small body, so she understands there's something like a child or something like that in the bag. Of course, I don't have specific first-hand knowledge of, of any of that. That, yeah. that was the story. Very quickly, she would have called the authorities, and uh, the case proceeded from there. Right. And how good a look did she get of the person who was doing the burying? So um, apparently, she got a, quite a good look of both the, the male and the female adults. And she did provide descriptions, uh, only as it turned out, the descriptions didn't lead anywhere in the investigation. So the police were called. What happened once the uh, police response occurred? So this was uh, pretty much right before the laboratory got involved. So there was a call to the laboratory explaining the situation at the time. And the request was to expedite some analysis on these limbs. Uh, in other words, can we get some DNA work immediately to get a result as quickly as possible, primarily uh, really for two reasons. Number one, to ensure that the limbs were just from one child and not multiple children, although um, it looked from the observations that there was uh, just one, there were two arms and two legs. And secondly, to get the gender of the child. So in 1999, the STR analysis had progressed at least to the point where we were able to very quickly develop a DNA profile, but also incorporate a gender marker. It would be very easy to determine if it was a male child or a female child. Now, was there a forensic anthropology aspect to this in the sense of going beyond the DNA and you know, trying to do like an age estimate from the child's teeth or whatever else it might be? Yes, so at this point, uh, we only had the arms and the legs. There was no torso or, oh, or head. There was a little bit of that, to my understanding. Uh, they had to estimate the age of the child. And in fact, I believe they overestimated the age just by a, a couple of years. But it was clearly a sort of somewhere between a sort of toddler and an early school age child. Sure. The DNA analysis revealed very quickly within 24 hours that uh, the child was female. But um, the laboratory in Toronto is linked to the coroner's office building. So when the bag was brought into the coroner's office, I was able to attend. And I watched the limbs being taken one by one from the bag. So that's kind of important as the story goes, because I was able to see that the limbs were quite fresh. They'd obviously recently just been dismembered and disposed of and I had a visual observation of the skin color of mm. the limbs, which sort of came into play a little later. Did you note that at the time, or was that just something you had in the back of your mind? How did that work? Yes, yeah, so as an invited guest into the coroner's office at that point, I wasn't taking any notes. I was just mm. advising on a small sample to take for the DNA analysis that I wished to have in my hand immediately to um, obviously document that, provide the chain of continuity, and take it right across the street to the lab and start working on the DNA analysis. And that should have been relatively quick, even in 1999. It's basically a reference sample kind of analysis. Were you able to get a good profile right away then? Yes, so this wasn't a very complex DNA case at all. As you allude, it, the DNA was in good condition. These were clearly fresh body parts. 
DNA in abundance from a piece of the, f the flesh or the, the tissue. Mm -hmm. And yes, within um, a matter of hours, we, we had a DNA profile. Now, you have to remember in 1999, a 24-hour sort of turnaround was about as quick as it could get. Sure. Uh, these days, you can go from sample to result in a matter of two or three hours. But back in uh, the late 90s, a 24-hour turnaround time was considered very quick. And of course, we obliged with that testing, and we were able to determine the gender of the child very quickly as an investigative aid. And of course, at that point, they had some other ideas. They must have had some sort of sketch of the people who were burying the child, whether that sketch, as it turned out, wasn't very useful. Yes, so I wasn't party to the investigation at that mm -hmm. point, but clearly the police officers were, were conducting their own investigations, probably along those lines. Uh, in terms of the number one thing, which was to identify the, the child and the possible perpetrators of, of this grisly crime. Yeah, and of course, a DNA profile for the victim is useful for identification, but only if you have other things to go on, right? I mean, she wouldn't have been in any database no. or anything of that nature. No, you're right. And um, at the outset, and manifestly, it felt like a very straightforward case. We had a witness who clearly saw the suspects mm -hmm. at that point. Uh, these were people who were burying the bags within which were body parts of a child and apparently got a good description even to the point where she spoke with him, uh, the male, uh, albeit briefly. But they didn't find these individuals right away. Apparently. No, yeah. no, it took the best part of a, a month actually. It was, was in early uh, 2000 that they identified the parents of the child. And how did that come about? How were the how were the parents eventually? And it was the child's parents who were burying her. It turns out it was her biological father and her stepmother. Her biological mother was in the country from which she emigrated from. I see. The DNA work. How did it contribute to trying to find the parents? So this was the sort of interesting part of the case, I'd say, from my perspective, because when you generate a DNA profile you uh, generate some statistics that go along with that. Just a little bit of background, we call this the random match probability. Mm -hmm. And it can only be a, a match probability if you have something to compare it with. So at this point, we, we had unknowns. We didn't have a known to say the probability that the source of these two profiles are known and an unknown are the same is X, whatever that might be. We had a statistic that could speak to the rarity of the profile, and that, that was it. Sure. And when we perform routine DNA analysis, we generated in Ontario five different statistics, five different numbers that spoke to the rarity of the DNA profile that was generated. Now, it depends on the, de the denominator, too, right? Was it against the population of Canada or against a particular ethnic group, or how did that work? Just backing up a little bit, it's well documented in the literature well before 1999 that the differences uh, between ethnic groups are greater than those within those ethnic groups. So, for example, a Caucasian like myself from the UK would have a more similar DNA profile, if I can put it like that, to a Caucasian in the United States, even mm. though we live miles apart. Conversely, a Caucasian like myself in the UK, if my next-door neighbor was, was black, lived just literally at one house down, 
the expectation would be because of his or her ethnicity that our DNA profiles would be quite different. So we already knew that you have to uh, essentially bin the statistics into ethnic groups. That was very well known. So in Ontario, we had four populations that were generated from real data from people of declared ethnicity from the province of Ontario. And that's what we call our four databases. Mm -hmm. Every time we generate a DNA profile, we would consult all four of those databases. In fact, we, we had five. We also had a North American First Nations database. Okay. In addition to Caucasian, Black, East, East Indian, we called it in those days, and Oriental, again, that's what we used to call it in those days. So those are our five databases, mm -hmm. and we generate five numbers. These are all data that came from the, the population of Ontario. Okay. So by East Indian, would that be like South Asian, or how would that actually... And then Oriental would be East Asian? Is that how we would classify it today? Yes, uh, pretty, pretty much spot on. In fact, um, I think the, uh, the term now for the, the East Indian would be Southeast Asian. So our understanding has gotten a lot better since 1999. But the basics is really isn't that much different. I mean, the STRs are able to give you an indication, at least, some probabilities of an individual's uh, ethnicity, at least the, what the probabilities are, right? Yes, yeah, so, so this is the key, and you're touching on it now. The, uh, the principles of population genetics have obviously progressed to the point that we're now looking at single polymorphisms or changes in the DNA strand, and these are very indicative of things like ancestry and ethnicity. One of the other examples that occurs to me based on your own uh, background is I saw recently that there's a difference between people from the east of England and people from the west of England. So the, uh, the old Roman Britons versus the Saxon Britons, is, there's still a, a division ethnically that can be found genetically in the uh, two sides of England. So. Absolutely, and we're learning more now about uh, human migration and uh, mm -hmm. just how populations became to be, even in countries where there really isn't a lot of distance between people. So we're now understanding a lot about that using these new DNA techniques. But at the time in forensic science, you could not, with any degree of certainty, and uh, this is why it was never used, predict the ethnicity of somebody just off their DNA profile. Mm -hmm. That was uh, something that no forensic biologist would, would ever commit to. And in fact, pretty much was established that you, you wouldn't go there. You wouldn't release that sort of information. So what did it say, though, about this uh, little girl in Toronto you all found? What did it say about her? So the, uh, the five databases that I explained a little earlier, I, I had the statistical data from all of them. And I noticed that in one of them, the uh, East Indian population, it was several orders of magnitude more common. Uh, than the others. So we're dealing with sort of billions to tens of millions type of differences. So uh, just, I don't know the specific numbers, but just as an example, in the other four databases, I had, say, one in 10 billion. In the East Indian, it stood out as being far more common than that. So I parked that knowledge. I didn't think much about it, actually. At the time, we just released the information that we had one child, it was a female child, that's the investigative aid. This happened very quickly. 
and expected that the investigation would continue and they would shortly find out who the parents were and maybe ask them a question or two. Well, yeah, I mean, if in these cases, the first thing that you're expecting is that there would be a missing person report from a set of parents who were very worried about their child. Yes, so that didn't materialize and so the suspicion grew uh, immediately. Also, you, you have to uh, remember that the, the media were all over this case in Toronto. It was it made a massive splash. It was all over the front pages. Uh, in fact, immediately when the child was discovered and then onwards for a number of weeks and still there was no tangible information that came from the public about who the child could be or who the parents could be. Sure. The other thing is, is like, were the schools, uh, the schools must have been aware and the girl was probably of school age, but for whatever reason, there was not an expectation, you know, all of a sudden a child goes missing around the same time. That didn't bring up any lead, apparently, for whatever reason. No, at the time not. It turned out that the child was five years old and mm -hmm. uh, was attending school. So just going back a little bit, so the DNA profile, in my mind, I, I thought this is likely an East Indian. And remember I said I was at the coroner's office when the limbs were taken from the bag. Sure. And I... I saw that they were sort of darker in color. Mm -hmm. Again, this was just information I had in my mind. But I also said that when the witness met the male suspect mm -hmm. in the park, he said, hola. Right. So the investigation and the media were focusing on Spanish or Hispanic population. And that's exactly where everybody went. Nobody was thinking it could be an East Indian child at this point. Sure. including, as it turned out, the teacher of the female child. So I was sitting on this information for a few days where the investigation wasn't proceeding very far, where it was literally all over the TV news, the newspapers, and uh, that was when I decided that I'd like to consult my boss, essentially to make her accountable for this rather controversial decision at the time to suggest that the child was of East Indian mm -hmm. ethnicity and not Spanish. Um, to support that, not only did I have the visual, I had actually hand calculated from other population databases from the FBI, particularly the Hispanic population, mm -hmm. what the DNA profile would be statistically. And that too was orders of magnitude higher than the East Indian population that we had. Sure. So bearing in mind plus or minus one order of magnitude, mm -hmm. no matter where in the world you would be from, if you were of a certain ethnicity, I used that information to really convince myself that the child was not Hispanic. So I consulted my boss and suggested strongly that we should release this information to, to the coroner's office, through the police, to the media. There is a kind of courage that comes from being a good forensic scientist because the role of the forensic scientist is to follow the facts, right? What do we actually know, not what we're conjecturing, what we, the impression we had? And it takes a special person to be able to keep their focus on that and not let that get away, you know? Uh, I applaud you for being stubborn, basically. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I also had a boss that I could blame if I had to. The, the shifting accountability was also a factor, I think. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, in, in all seriousness, I, it was very much on my mind. You're right, we have a duty to, to really not involve any guesswork in, in our work. That, that is a very dangerous thing. 
mm -hmm. and uh, this would have fallen firmly into that category. But I thought all things considered that it was something that we had to do. Yeah, I mean, on your level, it, it may have seemed like guesswork, but on the other hand, the statistics associated with what you were doing were orders of magnitude more valuable than anything else that was known about that girl. Yeah, so I use the term more common. It's still a rare, any DNA profile is a rare profile. But yes, it was orders of magnitude more, more common than the other ones that I had information for. Bearing in mind, I then went back and hand calculated a couple just to satisfy myself that this wasn't an anomaly. So I had not only the statistical data, I had the visualization, and I also had the fact that Toronto, the entire city, was gripped by this case and uh, the investigation wasn't moving forward. So your boss was willing to, uh, you were able to prevail upon your boss to uh, yes. release this information? Yes, and it wasn't like I had to persuade her too much. Uh, uh -huh. I think uh, the case was on everybody's mind and, and I think it was pretty obvious that this was very significant investigative information given the circumstances of the case. Sure. And then uh, did the police use that information at that time? or? Yes, so the information was provided in, in written form with some caveats to the coroner's office who then consulted the chief investigator. But before the information was released to the public, they, they did some community work. Mm -hmm. um, Toronto is, is a city that's known for its community. It's a very eclectic city. Uh, people from er everywhere, all over the world in, in communities who get along very harmoniously. And so that, that was just another factor that the police had to deal with, go to speak to community leaders in the Southeast Asian population to really just give them the heads up, like a courtesy. That took a, a day or two. After that, when they released the information to the media, immediately the school teacher recognized that this could be a child that was in her class. Right. Once some real information had come to her and she said, oh, my assumptions were wrong and now I, I've seen it. That school teacher was, was able, was able to, to put two and two together. So, so yes, uh, at the time I think I was wondering what would take you so long? What would you need in order to say I had a child in my class one day and now a child that's not in my class? Uh, it doesn't really matter what anybody's saying about what nationality she may be. Sure. But it turned out, in fairness to the teacher, that the investigation through the media had very much skewed it towards a Hispanic or a Spanish-speaking sure. child. The teacher, she, uh, she had been visited by the stepmother of the child three or four days prior to her discovery. Uh, maybe it wasn't that long, but sometime before. And the stepmother had said that her real mother, her biological mother, had been taken gravely ill and that the entire family was to return to, to the country of origin. Mm -hmm. So the teacher just figured that the child was taken out of school to attend her mother's funeral. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, she had no reason to believe that the deceased child was of Southeast Asian origin either. So right. that's why she didn't come forward. It was specifically the information about the ethnicity of the child that obviously changed her, her view on that immediately. So at that point, the father and stepmother were identified. Did you wind up doing a DNA profile to match them to the daughter, or did they confess, or what happened there? Yes, so um, just one step back. Uh, the child was identified off fingerprints, actually, on a workbook, so some of the schoolwork that she was doing. Because the limbs were so fresh, and they hadn't decayed at all or any, anything, degraded at all, 
because they were discovered almost immediately following her, her murder and disposal. Mm -hmm. So fingerprints were very clear from the body and very clear from some of the schoolwork. So the identity was established immediately. Mm. I believe that was through some immigration records that they got immediately. I see. Then having got those records and that they now know who the child was, it was very easy to figure out who the parents were. And they staked out their, their apartment. They'd actually moved apartments at that point, just preparing to leave the country for good. And they made arrests and Although there was some story that came with the confession, they essentially, the father did confess. Did they live near the West End Park where the body was found? Yes, the they were within were walking distance. Okay, and the school was as well? Uh, it was in the same area, yes. Okay, uh, and as it turns out, they were of Pakistani origin? Yes. And so it fit the population profile just as you anticipated? Yes, it did. So what had actually happened? I mean, what, I mean, was the rest of the body ever found? Or how, what happened to this little girl? The entire body w was not discovered. Um, but what, what had happened was that the, the child, uh, this is another part of the, the story that really saddens me. The child had wanted to, to have her parents buy some school photographs. She was wearing a, a dress that she just loved, and she was dressed in that clothing for school photographs and in badgering her father for the $10 to buy the, the photographs, he became enraged and essentially started to beat on her in the apartment. The stepmother uh, apparently intervened or tried to intervene, was told to stay out of it, and the father ended up beating the child to death. At that point, he decided the best thing to do was to dismember the body and uh, attempt to dispose of the body. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's the story as to what happened. However, the father did say that initially that the child, a five-year-old, had committed suicide while he was out grocery shopping, which mm -hmm. turned out to be preposterous, of course. Uh, were there other children in the household? No, just the one child. So I attended the scene. We were talked about scene attendance uh, a little bit earlier with a colleague of mine. The apartment had been whitewashed, uh, so it had been cleaned up, and the mother and father had moved. Uh, but we did detect uh, small traces of blood in the sink, in the bathroom, where you'd expect water to be splashing. Even if you tried to clean a lot of blood up from a bathtub, it's, it's almost impossible. A forensic scientist is going to find that blood. Mm -hmm. um, that blood turned out to be the deceased child. But it didn't really matter at that time because it was clear that the father had, had dismembered the body in the bathtub and disposed of her. It was really just him saying that, Either she'd committed suicide, mm -hmm. and we, we performed some forensic tests at the scene that, that disproved that immediately. What I mean by that is he, he'd said that she was in front of the door in a very specific location. When he arrived home, she'd cut her throat, and she'd basically bled out all over the floor. But there wasn't even the slightest trace of blood, even when we pulled up the floor tiles. Sure. So that, that wasn't the story. There might have been bruising on her limbs as well that you might have been able to see, I don't know. Yes, there was in fact a lot of bruising on the limbs and some of the, the bruising, so I understand, had been inflicted over a period of time. She also had a skull fracture. We haven't talked about the head yet. This was another sort of interesting part of the story that in a cold-blooded way, having disposed of her body parts in garbage bags, 
in one area of the city down by the lake. He took her head alone in a backpack and wore the backpack and got on the public transit bus and uh, took the bus north a certain distance, got off the bus and buried the head in a, in a different location. He subsequently um, retraced those steps and the police did recover her head buried just north of the city. As for her torso, there was another garbage bag that was recovered down by the lake, mm-hmm. and it was ripped to shreds. It was, um, I remember receiving that in the laboratory. It was covered in blood, but there was nothing in it, and uh, we have to assume that some of the wild animals probably, sure. probably took the rest of the body. It's certainly an unusual case, especially given, and a difficult one, because the idea of being able to use the population databases in that way was really unusual at the time. Yeah, a sackable offense, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's well worth following through, you know, what's, a, what's right necessarily. Uh, sometimes you have to push the envelope a little bit to do what's right. Well, I'm certainly glad I did. Now, now I look back on that, that case as uh, sort of one of the defining moments of my career at the bench, for sure. Sure. And I assume that uh, both the, uh, uh, the father and the stepmother were convicted, and, and, and what was the disposition there? Yes, um, I, I can't remember the, the sentences that were handed down, but uh, certainly the father, he received a life sentence. The, the stepmother may be something a little lighter than that, as more of an accomplice type uh, of being part of, uh, of the process, obviously, including the disposal and really not coming forward either. So she was definitely complicit. I think um, they both received over, over 20 years to life uh, imprisonment. As I've said before on this podcast, when we've had incidents like this, and I mean, there's a certain dignity that victim deserves, and I'm sure would appreciate the fact that you were willing to, to go to that level of work and, and dedication to uh, uh, see the case resolved so that we know now what happened to her and there was some, some justice in that. Yes, so obviously you know, our, our job can be quite difficult in that sense. The event has already happened and, and we don't think about that. It's um, heartbreaking. I have a three-year-old daughter myself and mm-hmm. uh, I, I couldn't imagine, but certainly it's what we do the job for. I, I think most forensic scientists would tell you the same thing, is to at least uh, contribute to fair justice uh, for the victims of, of serious crime. I think that uh, Canadian forensic science laboratories have actually been very groundbreaking in certain aspects of things like process improvement and, and taking that in a very rigorous direction. And um, so we have a lot to learn from you in Canada. Yes, well, that, that's nice to hear. Thank you. Um, actually, the, uh, the Center of Forensic Sciences was, was quite an early adopter of the new DNA technology mm-hmm. back in the mid-90s. It was only developed... Uh, in the early 90s, and by the mid-90s, the Canadian uh, lab in Ontario was was using it in casework, and uh, many labs followed shortly after. But we were an early adopter, and we like to be on the cutting edge, and um, I'm very happy that you uh, you recognize that. We uh, very much appreciate, Andy, you being on, the, on Just Science. Thank you very much for sharing this uh, incredible case with us. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Next week on Just Science, we interview Texas investigator Mike Weber about a case involving Munchausen syndrome by proxy. This case will be told through the eyes of an investigator and what tactics he uses to solve difficult and sometimes even impossible seeming cases. Please visit the FTCOE website at ForensicsCOE.org for more information about this podcast. 
Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.